No mai, haere mai, kia ora tato, and welcome to the ninth episode in the Auckland Writers Festival Winter Series. Ko Paula Morris, toko ingoa, my name is Paula Morris, and I'm speaking to you as ever from Grays Avenue in central Auckland. In this hour, I'll chat with each of our writers about their latest book. We'll hear a short reading from each, and then towards the end of the episode, all of the writers will return for a final question or two. You are very welcome to make comments or ask questions throughout the episode. Just use the chat function on Facebook and YouTube. I'll try to include your questions if we have time. Now, remember the books we're discussing today are available for sale or order. Just click on the buy the book link in the episode description. Remember also that this series is free to view. So if anyone asks you for credit card information, please ignore them. And <laughs> do not click on any links in the comments unless those links are supplied by the Auckland Writers Festival. Thanks as ever to our generous technical partner, Auckland Live, and to Copyright Licensing New Zealand for their support in making this series possible. Now, let's welcome our three writers uh, in the order in which they'll be talking to us. Uh, first, Associate Professor Selina Tusitala-Marsh, who's here to talk about her book, Moped. Kia ora, Selina. Kia ora, Paula. Malole soifo Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Pacific, and the rest of the world. It's so great to be here. I'm joining you from my kitchen on Waiheke Island. Lovely. Thank you. And also joining us, uh, not from Waiheke Island, but a much larger <laughs> continent, Professor Cass Sunstein, the author of How Change Happens. Kia ora, Cass. Yora, uh, it's an honor and fun to be here uh, in uh, addressing uh, the world and also a country which is a light of the world right now. And uh, a salute to you all. And you are, tell us where you are. I am in Concord, Massachusetts, which is where the American Revolution started in a house uh, in a place that is about 50 meters from where Ambassador Power finds herself. <laughs> How very strange. Our third guest is Ambassador Samantha Powell, author of The Education of an Idealist. Kia ora, Ambassador. Welcome. Great to be here. Uh, we wished that we were going to be there in person, uh, and we're very excited. It was going to be my first trip to New Zealand, um, but we, we hope to get there as soon as we catch up to you in terms of how you're managing this horrible crisis. And I'm, as Cass said, in the same location roughly, uh, but the first thing I did when I left government uh, was convert a shed in the back garden of the family house that we own. This is our first family house because when we were in government, we moved around a lot. We had two kids, but I decided I needed that shed in order to separate myself from my lovely children uh, <laughs> in order to get any <laughs> Uh, while being in their uh, vicinity. So uh, I'm in the backyard and Cass is in the house and Lord knows where our children are. They're running wild. Thank you very much. Yeah. I must just say... <laughs> make it Zoom-bombed, but there are worse things. <laughs> to our viewers, Conquer, um, Massachusetts is a fantastic place. It's also where you can see the home of Nathaniel Hawthorne and the home of Louisa May Alcott, if any of you want to visit in about five years when things have settled down. Oh. So thank you to all our guests and welcome. Oh. Um, uh, Cass and Ambassador Power, don't go away, stay where you are. Uh, we'll talk first to Associate Professor Selena Tusitala-Marsh. Oh. Selena is the first female Pacifica Poet Laureate of New Zealand and my lovely colleague at the University of Auckland where she teaches Pacific literature and creative writing. Selena is also a tireless champion, as many of you know, of reading and writing in schools, working on the crucial task of sowing seeds in order to transform our future here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and throughout the Pacific, the South Pacific. The award-winning author of three influential poetry collections, Fast Talking P.I., Dark Sparring, and Tightrope, Selena has now written something unexpected, <laughs> How Your Difference Makes a Difference is a graphic memoir that explores growing up Pacifica in New Zealand, already a sales phenomenon. It's also a finalist in this year's New Zealand Book Awards for children and young adults. Talofalava, Selena. Talofalava, Paula. I love how you've described Mophead as unexpected because truly, truly it was. It was almost an afterthought. Um, I was visiting my publisher, Sam Alworthy, at AUP, and we would we were discussing my uh, written memoir from my two-year tenure as Poet Laureate. 
and I was already already 60,000 words into it and I was we were excited about the new project it would be my first kind of formal foray into memoir and I was just at the threshold of the door when I turned around and said to Sam oh hey I've just been doodling about something do, do you want to see it and Sam was like uh yeah sit down and how much have you got and I said I've actually got a whole book and then I pulled out my iPad and showed him the very first draft of Mophead and he was just uh okay this detour it's now we're we're now rerouting we're 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 rerouting down this detour because um it's got so much energy it's of of this time let's let's see where this takes us so what made you start that doodling as you call it I've always doodled. I've always doodled as a kid. Um, one of the, you know, uh, mum used to take us to secondhand bookstores throughout my whole childhood. So I cultivated a really eclectic reading habit. So the very first brand new book I ever received was from my father, one of like three gifts I ever received from him throughout my whole life. And it was Spike Milligan's Bad Jelly the Witch. And in it, like my, my whole world was kind of rocked off its axis when I realized that he not only wrote the story, but drew the pictures and he hand wrote the story. And that was a marvelous thing to me because that drawn and that written line had so much power to convey your own story in your own way. And so I started doing, you know, hand writing my own books as kids do. Um, from about the age of nine or ten. The problem was, though, is that I was such a perfectionist, I could never finish anything. So Mophead's actually the first ever <laughs> doodly, scrawly story I've ever managed to complete. Now, today we're talking in our episode about change, about transformations and how they occur in the personal political, social spheres. And I always think of you as a one-woman agent of change. And is that part of your motivation, would you say, in writing Mophead, of, of expressing how someone can change and, and how they view themselves? Well, Ambassador Power talks about, well, there, there's one tagline from um, her memoir about what can one person do, you know, what can one person do? Because when you think of everything all together at the same time, you I'm, I'm rendered quite powerless and helpless and, and I feel quite depressed. But when I think about the unique thing that one person can do, and in Mophead, it's about standing in your difference and knowing how your own unique difference can make a difference and not accepting the prescribed narrative about that difference that you might kind of face in all around you in society. So for me, it's that, you know, the, the narrative about being a brown woman in a colonized or you know, post-colonial society, right? The, the stories get really narrow and very um, boundary-driven. Mophead's all about breaking out of that and getting getting wild and untamed, if you like, as Glennon Doyle's latest book um, talks about. So I think I think unless unless you occupy your own center of power there's very little you can do to affect change around you. Um, I'm just thinking about the Pacifica population in New Zealand. I believe right now it's about 8% and obviously the, the concentration is higher in Auckland. Samoan is actually the second largest non-English language spoken in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at what Auckland Council said about Pacifica people in, in Auckland, they described the group as mostly New Zealand-born, predominantly young, and highly urbanised. And I wonder if you think that this new generation's experience of growing up here in New Zealand is different from yours, or are many of the issues still the same? I think many of the issues faced by people living in diaspora, especially those of us with kind of mixed heritage, are, are similar. And one of those issues is authenticity of identity. Like, how do I stand in this place as, as fully myself? How do I not kind of project a cultural identity that I actually don't fully authentically feel like I occupy um, because of other people's expectations around, you know, this is how a proper Samoan woman should speak like and act like and talk like or not, you know? So it's, 
that's why this uh, occupation of the space, this half car space or the afakasi space, is really important in the diaspora. You know, we look to our kind of the previous generation who are were often fluent in their mother tongue. You know, many of us of this generation are trying to learn, but because that's not our our context, it's really difficult. And in, in many ways, we don't feel like we have permission to occupy certain spaces because we don't speak the language or dance the dance or go to a conservative, culturally-based church. But actually, there's a plethora of identities and stories coming up that are really exciting. And it's an honor for me to be in my place of privilege and be able to go into schools and say, hey, I am Samoan, Tuvalu, and English, Scottish, French. This is me. This is my story. What's yours? Um, I'm going to ask you to read in a minute, but before you do, I'd like uh, the audience to know, in case they don't already know, that you were head girl of Avondale College in West Auckland, Avondale, one of the largest schools in New Zealand. I'm also from West Auckland, but I was never in contention to be head girl anywhere. So in my bitter memories, I was sort of head girls are sort of deeply popular and on the inside but did you feel differently? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there were three three other girls contending for that um, hot hot seat, and um, and I was the fourth girl. And I think because they were so kind of evenly qualified across a range of intellectual, sporting prowess, and 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 popularness, I think they voted for the outer. I think they voted for the weird, arty, couldn't quite. Um, confine her to any box and that story's in Mophead and I, I get my revenge because um, the principal made those three um, girls all my deputies you know and, and I was so disappointed to be bestowed this honour because seventh form was going to be my year of rebellion you know I, I was sick of being the good girl and um, so I had to negotiate all those kind of spaces I still do. Mm -hmm. Oh absolutely now you were going to not only read to us from Mophead but we're going to do a share screen, viewers, so that you can actually see a book Yay. because it is a graphic memoir. Yes. So Francis, our very able tech person, is now going to disappear me, make Selena very small, yes. and reveal some pages. And let me read to you. Let me read to you. I was just going to say, too, that so the illustrations, um, my publisher loved the illustrations. He said they were quirky. But we, we can actually contract in a professional children's book illustrator to redo these. And my response was, um, yeah, nah. Let's, it's really important for viewers to know that these are written, you know, the drawn line and the written line were by me. It's, it's all part of my quirky story. So I hope you enjoy them too. So Mophead, how your difference makes a difference. And then little mini mop heads down there, and she says, she drew me too. I have to do the voices, Paula. Sorry. <laughs> uh -huh. It's very early for the voices, but go on. <laughs> okay, next page. Thanks, Francis. When I was 10, I was teased for having big hair. Not just thick, curly hair, but wild, afakasi hair. Afakasi equals being Samoan plus something else. I got thick, wavy hair from my Samoan Tuvaluan mum and thin, curly hair from my New Zealand, Scottish, English, French dad. And this is my famous hair equation, which always makes the audience laugh. <laughs> My hair was so wild, it defied gravity and didn't come back down to earth. So big, it wouldn't fit under hats or caps. It broke the cute bows and clips other girls wore. Kids called me Mophead. I was tall, skinny and brown, like the mop in our garage. It smelled like old socks. The mop had a head made from hundreds of cotton threads and a long body made of wood. 
being called Mophead made me feel bad. I tried to ignore the teasing, but it just got louder. I cut it. Some kids called me Fuzzy Wuzzy, Gollywog. I wore it in plaits like Pippi Longstocking. Some kids called me Pippi Blackstocking. So I tied it back in a tight bun. No one called me anything then. I was the same. But we're not made to be the same. At home, I'd let my hair out and be a champion rider. Go, black beauty, a chart-topping singer. Ain't no mountain high enough. Or a record-breaking explorer. Come on, Ed. Coming. But at school, it was a different story. Then one day, a famous poet visited our school. Hi, guys. I'm Sam. He was tall and thin. He had wild hair and wild words. They know the way a mountain laughs. Sam was not the same. He loved being different. The kids loved it too. Stay free, kids. Bye, Sam. Write me a poem. Do you think he brushes his hair? Could I do that? We were the same kind of different. Tall, tick, thin, tick, wild hair, tick, sings words, tick, red car, cross, dog called minstrel, cross. That's when I decided I wouldn't be tied back. I was going wild. Kia ora, Selena, that was fantastic. And I, I know we've used this as a teaching tax and you use it when you go to schools. Even your tokotoko panel, uh, a stick that you were given as poet laureate has a mop head. Will you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. If I could get my husband to bring the tokotoko to me, could you just quickly do that, Dolly? So, you know, poets believe in synchronicity and we believe in flow and, and magic of words and worlds. And when um, Jacob Scott from Matahiwi Marae in the Hawke's Bay carved my Poets Laureate Tokotoko, which is a carved Māori walking stick, it um, came out like this, this beautiful, long walking stick that can be taken apart and uh, reassembled at will. It fits into my backpack and I traveled 12 countries around the world telling the tokotoko tale, you know, it looks like a mop. And it brought back all those memories of my um, difference in childhood and when mophead was the bane of my existence being called that. And suddenly the story surfaced about how you take what makes you different and make it make a difference. And so for Pacifica peoples, indigenous peoples, these inanimate objects are our libraries. They're our warehouses of knowledge and each part tells a tale. Um, and this is what my written memoir you know, focuses on. It meditates on each of the distinct 11 parts that comprise my tokotoko. And of course, it's no coincidence that I'm the 11th poet laureate of Aotearoa, New Zealand. So it's all it's all very magical, but reclaiming the power of the difference, um, that's what my research is about um, on Indigenous women poets. It's what my creative work is about, and it's what I do as a, as a poet and as a teacher. That's really wonderful, Selena. Will you hang around, please, until the end Absolutely. of the episode? Absolutely. We can talk Absolutely. again. Absolutely, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Paula. Kia so our next guest today is legal scholar, Professor Cass Sunstein, who has the dubious honour of being called by a former Fox News commentator, the most dangerous man in America. Now, if that's true, then we must agree that the pen is mightier than the sword because Cass Sunstein is the author of over 40 books and hundreds of academic articles. His books include the best-selling Nudge, Improving Decisions About Wealth, Health, Wealth and Happiness, which he co-authored with Richard Thala. He held senior roles in the Obama administration and teachers at Harvard Law School. 
described as a potent blend of scholar and scientist, an intellectual who's perpetually testing and sharpening his own theories through the collaborative process. Cass Sunstein's most recent book is How Change Happens, a work that continues Nudge's interrogation of how changes in attitude and behavior can occur, drawing on behavioral science and political philosophy. Tenakwe, Professor Sunstein. Uh, hello, great pleasure to be here. Very nice to see you. Now, it's interesting to hear Selena talk just now about how poets believe in the magical, they believe in, in synchronicity, because in your book, you talk about the human longing for pattern, that we look for it and want to see it in our lives. But does it really exist? You talk about this. What do you think? Sometimes, but if you look in the sky and you might see a cat or a horse or a tyrant, it might be that it's your magic and not the magic of the sky. Now, there's some chance the sky is being magical, but the human mind is pattern seeking. And sometimes you seek patterns and you find them, even though they're not quite there. Now, you also say that, that humans are naturally risk-averse, and what Selena's talking about and what we're talking about generally in this week's episode is overcoming those feelings of being risk-averse to, to affect change. Is it so profoundly ingrained in us, do you believe, um, our, our fear of, of change, even if it might be positive? Put it a little differently. So for losses, people are... Uh, are, are very uh, concerned. So if you think you're going to lose something from the status quo, uh, you kind of see red. If you think you're going to gain something from the status quo, that's good. But it's not as good as losing from the status quo is bad. And that gives the status quo a kind of power. People are, with respect to gains, often risk-seeking. So they'll play the lottery and they'll gamble. It's, it's loss aversion, that's the technical term, that can both keep us out of trouble and also prevent uh, extremely great things from happening. Your book examines the constraining effects of social norms and the power of challenges to those norms. And I wondered even how, if they're very small challenges. And I wonder if you could give an example, some concrete examples of how a small challenge, a nudge as you call them, can make change. Well, uh, in Germany right now, there's a small nudge, which is that companies all over Germany with the uh, encouragement, I believe, of the government are automatically enrolling people in green energy, solar and wind, where you can opt out and go for coal if you want. The consequence of that small uh, nudge has been to get many people all over a large country enrolled in green energy. It's been a spectacular effective small intervention. And what about, I mean, if we think about something that's going on at the moment, uh, a big movement, international movement, maybe to do with climate change, maybe Black Lives Matter. Is it a lot of individuals coming together to create momentum for change? Is it just momentum? Can something really reach a tipping point and affect change? Absolutely. So for, you know, you can take your pick of movements and you might like them or not like them uh, with respect to climate, with respect to some movements in the direction of authoritarianism. We've seen changes in directions that are either wonderful or not that have been often prompted by one or two. My dog is nudging me right now. I was just thinking uh, that. Uh, changes that have had a very large effect on societies in, uh, in the macro. So with climate, in Europe, we've seen very substantial movements that have been a product of one or two people who've been very visibly speaking out, who've been able to create a cascade. So the idea that things are often intractable is an illusion that if there's one person who's brave, who's visibly being brave, then it can be the case that you can be a spark that ignites a large scale movement. That's my dog calling me on my phone. <laughs> not going to start a movement. He's, he's feeling very ignored, clearly. I was sorry that that really distracted me from the question I was about to ask you. Uh, but uh, let's talk about this, this um, concept that you've just mentioned the cascade. What do you mean by that? You use the term a lot in your book. 
Okay, so if you think about something like, and I'm going to give two very different examples, the hashtag MeToo movement all over the world and the rise of Nazism, they've both been a consequence of one or two people um, uh, visibly saying or doing something. It might be, you know, a very brave uh, woman who's said, you know, if it happened to you, then me too. Or it might be a very uh, evil uh but somewhat charismatic leader, Hitler, who's uh, willing to signal something. And then if that person is visible and prominent, that person can attract another or two or three. And then once there's four, that can be a recipe for eight or 10 or 12 or 15. And once there's 15, you can turn a society around. What I've just described is very stylized, but if you look at how Nazism happened in Germany in the 30s, or if you look at how hashtag Me Too happened in the recent past, it's exactly that pattern where there's an early mover who is, let's say, brave or um, passionate, um, whether or not their cause is just. And that brave or passionate person can give a kind of social signal to a whole host of others. And once a few of them join, then soon enough we have you know, something completely unanticipated. If you look at the environmental movement all over the world, and I'm thinking now of movement to make the air cleaner, not climate change, something earlier that's been in many countries fantastically successful. It's because one or two people were able to initiate a process by which three and four people joined. And eventually it was hundreds and then thousands and then millions. And then it's a whole nation. In New Zealand, you know, I'm an outsider here, so I'm going to take a risk. The spectacularly successful response to COVID-19 is in large part a response, a product of a social cascade. And who gets the credit for that? Let's just bracket that question. Uh, there's no question that it's happened. And as a result, things are as good as they are there. So people still complain and to see here. I don't know why, because I feel that actually being an island has really paid off for us and going hard and fast, as our government said, uh, seems to have worked at the moment. Um, would you, Cass, read from your book for us? What, what would you like to read to us today? I think that would be a yes. I will read. And it's going to be from early on in the book. And it's about exactly what we're talking about, large scale change. Ready? Here we go. Uh, opposition, how would anybody know? How would anybody know what somebody else opposes or doesn't oppose? That someone says he opposes or doesn't oppose depends on the circumstances, where and when, and to whom, and just how he says it. And even then you have to guess why he says what he says. So too, even in action. That's a quotation from a former Nazi in the 1950s in response to the question, didn't people oppose Hitler? A few decades ago, I testified in Congress about President Bill Clinton's don't ask, don't tell policy, which allowed gays and lesbians to serve in the military, but only on condition that they were silent about their sexual orientation. After my testimony, a member of our legislature came up to me, and I'll never forget this, it's engraved on my memory, and said with a kind of nostalgia and puzzlement, in my day, we didn't have any homosexuals. He paused and added, well, maybe we had one. There was a guy who lived by himself up on a hill. A few years later, I was a visiting professor at a law school in the United States, and I happened to pass in the hallway near my office a law student who was female, a student of mine, speaking to a colleague of mine, an older law professor who was male. To my astonishment, and this is, you know, decades ago, the professor was stroking the student's hair. I thought I saw, just for an instant, a grimace on her face. It was a quick flash. When he left, I said to her, that was horrible, inappropriate. He shouldn't have done that. Her response was dismissive and made me feel about two feet tall. She said, it's completely fine. 
he's an old man. It's not a problem. 30 minutes later, I heard a knock on my door. It was the student. She was crying. She said, he does this all the time. It is horrible. My boyfriend thinks I should make a formal complaint. I don't want to do that. I don't want to make a fuss. Don't talk to him about it and don't tell anyone. What I did is a story for another occasion. What I want to emphasize here is that social norms imposed constraints on what she could say or do. Just like the gay men and lesbians in the story of the testimony. There wasn't only one in the United States when that guy was growing up. She hated what the professor was doing. After hearing my little comment, she felt safe to tell me what she actually thought. But because of existing norms, she didn't want to say or do anything. Here I'm interested in two different propositions. The first is that when norms start to collapse or shift, people are unleashed in the sense that they feel free to reveal what they believe, to disclose their experiences, to talk and act as they wish, to write a book about having been called Mophead. That's not in my book, by the way. New norms and laws that entrench or fortify them lead to the discovery of pre-existing beliefs and values. The discovery can be startling. The women's movement in various times and places has been an example. The same is true for the disability rights movement, for the movement for gay and lesbian rights, and for the rise of modern authoritarianism. The second proposition is that revisions of norms can create new preferences and values. New ones and laws that entrench or fortify them can give rise to beliefs and values that didn't exist before. People are changed. Something like this can be said for the anti-smoking movement, the rise of seatbelt buckling, the rise of, anti, of, of environmentalism, and the rise of fascism. Begin with the phenomenon of unleashing. When certain norms are in force, people falsify their preferences. What's in their mind is something they tell no one, maybe their closest friends. As a result, strangers and even friends and family members may have no idea what's in their heads. People with certain values or convictions might just shut up. Once norms are revised, people will reveal their pre-existing convictions and values. What was once unsayable is said, and what once was once unthinkable is done. In the context of civil rights, something like this is broadly correct, and the Black Lives Matter movement is all about this. There's been a phenomenon of unleashing in the last weeks. That is not in my book. As we shall see, law often plays a significant role in fortifying existing norms or in spurring their revision. When a new leader is elected, the election may have a crucial signaling effect, offering people information about what other people think. If people hear that single signal, it might be a kind of green light. Does it matter whether revisions of norms liberate people, as in the case of the law student, or instead create new preference and values? It sure does. If preferences and values are hidden, fast social change is possible and nearly impossible to predict. When people are silent about what's actually in their heads, their fears, and their despair, it is really hard to know what's afoot because people conceal their beliefs and values and experiences, outsiders can't identify them. Once norms shift, large-scale changes in behavior are possible and no one will have anticipated them. When revisions and norms produce new preferences, rapid change is also possible, but the mechanics are different. People are not liberated. 
influenced and informed by new or emerging norms, they develop genuinely new thoughts and feelings. The rise of fascism is complicated and disputed, but this is one understanding. On one view, Hitler was able to spur hatred that did not really exist before. As one, one former Nazi put it, he was not anti-Semitic until I heard, and this is a quote, anti-Semitic propaganda. These points hold very broadly. Consider cigarette smoking, seatbelt buckling, uses of green energy, purchases of organic food, considerateness, vegetarianism, the use of new languages, religious practices, drug use, and crime. In every one of these cases, norms can constrain antecedent preferences. New norms can liberate them or instead create entirely new ones. In all of these cases, revisions and norms can result in big changes in an astoundingly short time, including legal reforms, which can entrench and fortify those revisions. Thanks very much, Cass. F fascinating. We have a, a viewer question for you. Um, I wondered if you would consider it. Uh, someone has suggested that thousands of individuals try to do brave actions and yet they fade away. Do you have a notion of what stands out with the ones who succeed? I'd say the, the mechanism is more um, kind of uh, stylized than that. Uh, if thousands of people try to do something, it may be a footnote to history or not even that. Uh, when social change happens, it's often that one person, maybe who will never make it in the history books, stood up or, or told someone off or visibly uh, cried. And then someone else saw that and responded. And then a third person saw the first two. And then pretty soon you have a very visible movement. So a thousand individual actors who are deterred or brave and inconsequential are all over the world. There are millions of them and nothing happens. What happens is when there's a visible linkage between the first and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth, and, and that creates democracy, it creates recognition of minorities that had been invisible to others except themselves. It creates hashtag me too. And it gave rise in the house from which I'm speaking right now to the American revolution. That's exactly what happened on these premises um, a few hundred years ago. That's really wonderful. And your dog agrees. Um, we have to move on now. It's been so interesting. Please uh, stick around for the end of the episode so we can talk some more. And I would like to remind viewers as well, um, at any time during this episode or afterwards, you can order books by clicking the link. Uh, Cass's upcoming book is called Too Much Information, which sounds <coughs> like another really fascinating read. Thanks so much, Cass. Thank you. Our third guest today from uh, another part of the forest is uh, Samantha Power, former US ambassador to the UN. Born in Ireland, she moved with her mother and brother to the US when she was a child, attended Yale, and by the age of 23 was a war correspondent reporting from Bosnia. She returned to the US to study law and a paper she wrote for law school became her first book, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, which won a Pulitzer Prize. She began working, <coughs> excuse me, for then Senator Obama, advising him on foreign policy and served on the National Security Council after he became president. When he announced that Samantha Power was his choice for the UN ambassadorship, he described her as one of our foremost thinkers on foreign policy, who shows us that the international community has a moral responsibility and a profound interest in resolving conflicts and defending human dignity. Her new book, The Education of an Idealist, is an honest and engrossing memoir of a personal and professional life of trial and error that takes readers to the front lines of war, the crowded cubicles of Washington, and the politics within the politics 
of war, peace, and diplomacy to Nakwe Ambassador Power. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great to be here, although I feel I have to start with an apology because normally when Cass is Zooming, it's my job to take care of the dogs. And so the fact that we're on this panel together created uh, an acoustic awkwardness uh, that we could have otherwise avoided. But um, I guess we, we, we've learned a lesson. <laughs> One of us has to be on dog duty at all times. Well, we live in a strange Zoom time, do we not? Now, in your memoir, you describe uh, being an outsider, I feel, at many points in your life as an immigrant, adolescent, uh, as a young woman reporting in, on, from the war zone, working in Obama's staff. And did you find moving from the position of outsider made it more difficult for you to affect change? Or did it give you an incentive to find new routes? Um, it's a great question, and you're right. Um, there are a lot of occasions, I suppose, in my in my checkered uh, journey uh, that that had me kind of feeling like I was parachuting in and needing to suss the lay of the land and figure out the the language and and the currencies and so forth. And so, in that sense, turning up at the White House wasn't that different than turning up in Bosnia as a rookie reporter and looking around and being a little intimidated um, and thinking that everybody else knew what they were doing and that I, uh, as a reporter in my early 20s, uh, as a government official, joining relatively late compared to my peers in my late 30s, but that feeling of I'm the only one who doesn't know what she's doing. So the fact that, you, you know, once you've done that a few times and, and figured things out eventually, it maybe gives you um, a little more fortitude when you're, when you're feeling somewhat at sea. I think the, the the part of being in government that maybe might come as a surprise uh, to others and, and maybe came as a pleasant surprise to me was, and this may have been mainly true because of who was president and Barack Obama certainly wouldn't be true in the current White House, but the extent to which I could kind of take the issues that I had been working on throughout my career uh, a desire to prevent, see the U.S. government doing more to prevent mass atrocities or to hold perpetrators of crimes against humanity accountable or to, at a more general level, to just make sure that human consequences were more central to White House and other governmental deliberations. That had been my agenda as a journalist, as an activist, as a professor. And Obama kind of gave me license to take that agenda into the government. And so in a way, I felt still very much like an advocate. And so there was a, a kind of seamlessness on, on one level. What was hard at the start was I just wasn't any good. <laughs> and so I didn't really know what I was doing. Cass knows we had just gotten married not long before uh, we entered the White House and he had served in the Department of Justice and had some experience, but we were really both finding our way. And I, and I think the hardest part about working in a large institution, and I gather just from talking to people who've read my book and are identifying from the fields of business and, and really any other kind of large uh, work culture. Uh, the, the hardest thing are the, the, the group dynamics, the gender dynamics, uh, again, the doubts in one's own head, the sense uh, of the limits of one's own capabilities or experiences. And I think uh, those group dynamics, um, the the clickiness, I mean, it's kind of, I worked on my, on my own as a human rights person on the outside. And to be so dependent on other people picking up your ideas and running with them or being part of coalitions, that took me time definitely to learn how to effectively uh, move people into into my side of the argument. Um, and it took a lot of cultivation and and frankly, it took, choosing my battles, uh, particularly in the early days before, uh, before I, I had shown that I knew how to get things done in government, you know, to really choose a few issues, get them across the finish line. And then people say, oh, okay, she, you know, uh, if, you, if, if you go with her, she, she actually does know how to get things done in the real world. Took a while. Because you write, I mean, in a fascinating way about the first year of the Obama administration and always hearing from people, we never do that or we always do that. And for you, it was learning how to navigate the bureaucracy and the hierarchy, which was extremely interesting and, you know, a, a minefield to navigate and when and how to speak up. Do, do you have any regrets, like real regrets, not just regrets for things you said, but 
something you felt passionately about that you weren't able to fight for? Um, well, you know, I will say uh, I don't want to un- understate the the adjustment factor. I mean, one of the hardest things, I suppose, in retrospect for me was that I had gone from working in then Senator Obama's Senate office, a very, very small staff, to being in very close touch with him on the campaign to as soon as he got elected in November 2008, him sending me and Cass an email and saying, I'm giving up my personal email uh, in effect, see you at the White House, and then being at the mercy of the gatekeepers, um, some of which, uh, you know, it, I mean, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world is to, I'm sure it's the same with your, your PM these days, is, you know, to protect her time or decide how that time gets allocated. Uh, well, Obama's time was his most precious, uh, precious commodity. And so some of it is just what rises to that level, especially at the time of the, the Great Recession that he was managing. Uh, but some of it is we don't actually we the gatekeepers may not want Samantha to be able to make that argument, let's say, to cut off military assistance to some government that's committing human rights abuses. And so that was maddening to, to have had that relationship, to feel like he'd be pretty receptive to my arguments and then to find myself a little bit shut out. But I got great advice, which was go where they ain't like, don't worry about access. There's so many issues in the world. There are so many vulnerable communities who don't feel like they have a voice where American foreign policy is affecting them in some way, uh, sometimes for the good or sometimes not affecting them nearly enough, sometimes uh, uh, to, to ill, uh, work on issues where you can build coalitions and get things done. So one of the first issues I worked on was Iraqi refugees, which actually will be something that uh, uh, then I hope President Biden will, will have to be dealing with as well as the large uh, refugee population and reestablishing the U.S. role as a, as a welcomer of refugees, uh, a role that Trump has turned his back on. Well, I was coming out, we were coming out of the Bush administration and the Bush administration invaded Iraq without any of the planning, and, you know, basically caused this huge rupture in the society and, and thousands of Iraqis were being killed. Uh, but also there had been not nearly enough done to take care of those Iraqis who work with U.S. soldiers uh, or U.S. aid organizations and Iraqis who were just fearing for their lives on, on sectarian grounds. So I realized that I had at that White House, even though I couldn't get in to see Obama about that particular issue because he, he was dealing with so many other things uh, with the economic crisis, uh, the Pentagon was my number one ally because so many of the officers at very senior levels had relied on Iraqi interpreters and were terrified that those individuals who'd helped keep them safe and navigate the hazards of working in Iraq were now vulnerable or, or subject to assassination plots. So we were able to increase the numbers of refugees that were able to come into the US and then maintain that uh, largely through the life of the Obama administration until Trump as a candidate and the Republican Party began to politicize that issue. I think, I think that doing that sooner, just focusing on your list of things you're trying to get done and not wallowing as I might have for a couple months of just, where did Obama go? Uh, then eventually access takes care of itself because you're doing things that the president wants done and you end up you know, in, in, the, in the, the meetings you, you, where, where other big substantive policy issues are getting discussed because you've actually proven that you can deliver uh, for, for people, again, who are, I think, in that, in that instance, really were counting on Obama to fulfill a number of the promises he made during the campaign. Ambassador Powell, would you read to us from your book? I'd be delighted. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, uh, so I'm reading a passage, um, and I, I, I hope it's, it's, uh, it makes sense as I read it why I'm reading it. Uh, it may not be what... what people expect, but it's from a chapter called Yes, We Can, which was uh, the title of a chapter about how Obama actually got the nomination um, to be the Democratic candidate for president. So this is set back in 2007. Uh, I'm reading it um, for two reasons. First of all, it's a reflection of the approach I've tried to take uh, in the memoir, uh, which is uh, to really not just say what we did, but also really open up the vulnerabilities, the doubts, uh, the foibles um, uh, of the individuals who are part of the story. And I I did that because very few government memoirs offer that kind of situated self. You see the the public official doing things in the UN Security Council, but you don't see the thought bubble that has them thinking, particularly if it's a working mom, 
oh shit, how am I going to pick up the kids <laughs> when this emergency meeting of the Security Council is running long? Um, and so throughout the book, I really try to kind of open up the inner life of the, the person who's telling the story who rightly or wrongly happens to be me. So this is a reflection of that. The other thing for those of you who are getting uh, a little bit happy uh, about the Biden-Trump polls, this is a story that shows you how chaotic the Obama campaign was in its early months. Um, and so uh, sadly, uh, it is possible for even those campaigns that are struggling and Donald Trump's campaign is struggling mightily right now but campaigns can recover. And so don't get too attached to those polls. I'm sure the, the race is gonna narrow at some point. So this is a reflection of early chaos that then gets supplanted by a pretty professional campaign. So here we go. As I worked at my computer in Winthrop, Massachusetts in the spring of 2007, I received an email that was clearly not intended for me. Cass Sunstein, a University of Chicago law professor and an Obama campaign advisor had written, Martha, isn't this campaign law group a disaster, as in worse than, say, anything? I had met this cast once before at an academic conference. We'd struck up a lively conversation, and I'd learned that, like me, he was an avid squash player, but we had not kept in touch. Cass had seemed almost incurably cheerful during our brief interaction, so the sour tone of this email surprised me. But since it was addressed to Harvard Law School professor Martha Minow, I deleted the message and went about my day. I soon realized, however, that I was not the only accidental recipient of Cass's private lament. Neither Cass nor I were full-time or paid Obama campaign advisors. We were professors who contributed policy ideas by telephone and email to candidate Obama's campaign and who spoke publicly on his behalf. Obama's staff had assembled a working group comprised of legal scholars to inform his views about an assortment of pressing issues, including how to go about closing the Guantanamo Bay detention facility and reversing President Bush's licensing of torture. Obama and Cass had been colleagues at the University of Chicago, where they both taught classes on constitutional law. With a possible Obama campaign speech on the rule of law approaching, this group, this campaign law group, had produced nothing. In expressing his frustration to Minow via email, Cass had mistakenly autofilled the entire senior staff of the Obama campaign. His criticism of the law group caused wide offense. Daniel Gray, the immensely capable lawyer in charge of domestic policy, took it as an insult to her leadership and forwarded the email to me saying, quote, can you believe this asshole, end quote. A friend of hers converted part of Cass's email into a large poster and hung it on the wall at Chicago campaign headquarters. And the poster said, Danielle Gray, worse than say anything, question mark. I felt for Cass, like most mortals, I had suffered my own email mishaps. Not long before I had been set up on a blind date by Tom Keenan, a friend and fellow professor whom I'd come to know through his research on mass atrocities. The date, the setup had not gone well. I wrote to Tom with a rundown of all I didn't like about his friend, asking how he could have conceivably thought that we might get along. I stressed that the incompatibilities were deep and I signed off the email, quote, I think Tom, as the old saying goes, you can only make them dress better, end quote. As soon as I hit send, I heard a ping in my inbox. It was the message I had just sent freshly delivered as an incoming email. Within seconds of that first ping, I heard a second. I had received a note from Tom, which simply read, you didn't. <laughs> I put my head in my hands and I slowly typed, I did. Tom and I were part of a listserv of thousands of genocide activists, scholars and survivors. And I had accidentally sent the note savaging the blind date to that whole list. Years later, when I was serving as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, people who had received my email would still exuberantly quote my words back to me, you can only make them dress better. Uh, that's my short reading, only to say that I reached out to Cass because I felt so bad for him because I had done this similar thing. And I told him, everybody's done something similar or soon will. Don't worry about it. And we are now married with two children and two dogs. 
That is a fantastic. I love that part of your memoir. And as you say, you always remind us in the memoir of what you're torn between your personal life and your private life, your children needing to f feed a baby while you're being summoned to a meeting, the long hours, the short hours of sleep. You, you seem enormously driven to me. Would you describe yourself as driven? I think so. Yeah. I feel like, I think I've always felt very lucky and, and very much kind of, uh, just, I have a, a, a gratitude ritual that I now have formalized with a dear friend of mine where we share with each other the three things for which we're grateful. But I've always felt like coming to America, my mother had blazing all these trails for me, which I write about uh, in the book. And with that, just feeling like I've got all this excess fortune, you know, how do I how do I use it? And so when I'm when I'm idle or even the adjustment to being a citizen, having been uh in the White House and then UN ambassador for four years, you know, it was, it was, it's a, it's, it was an adjustment. And now learning how to be a citizen, trying to activate the, the, the machinery and, and feeling, as was said earlier, um, uh, you know, small next to the, the scale of the, of the racial injustice and the inequality and all that, all that we know uh, is facing us. Um, that's been an adjustment and, and it's hard, but just keeping moving, keeping busy and, and trying to, I used to be an athlete and trying to always keep an eye, not on um, uh, basically on whether it's working on the scoreboard, not on how good you feel when you're, when you're making an effort. And, and I think that that was how Obama was uh, very much as a leader. It's just, okay, I get that you made a nice speech. <laughs> I get that we made a bunch of phone calls to various Republicans, but who's going to join us on this bill? You know, who's actually going to receive the humanitarian aid in Northern Syria, if anybody. Um, so I think that emphasis on real world results continues to be motivating because of course, uh, you know, the, the impact often feels limited. I'd like to bring the other two back right now. Can we bring back Selena and Cass? Because what you're saying is, is sort of the tension in your book and in our lives, which is that tension between the real world and then what we hope for it, our, our aspirations and our idealism. Um, I wondered if for, for each of you, we could discuss something that Ambassador Power uh, talks about in the prologue of her book, that the word education in the memoir's title doesn't have to suggest, suggest the end of idealism. Whatever pragmatic, pragmatic compromises you have to face in your life, whatever obstacles you face. And I wanted to ask each of you, and perhaps beginning with you, Ambassador Power, if you don't mind, do you believe that idealism must endure and can it? Well, let me first just offer what, what I mean by idealism, because I certainly don't mean utopianism. Um, I'm pretty clear-eyed, somebody who comes from Ireland originally and had the troubles as a background condition in, in my childhood, not something that ever affected me personally, but cut my teeth in Bosnia as a war correspondent, you know, witnessing ethnic cleansing. And so I'm not all that Pollyannish about uh, the state of the world. And indeed, I'm struck at the extent to which today American politics resemble those of the Balkans in the, in the 1990s. So it's things are sort of coming full circle uh, to, to a certain extent. But to me, idealism is comes down to, you know, do you like what you see around you? Do you feel like things are going in the direction uh, that you wish? If not, you that means you have implicitly a set of standards or aspirations that are being disappointed. Um, and that's how I feel every day that I, I keep in mind sort of how the world ought to be. I don't expect it to get there uh, overnight. Uh, but I think, you know, unless you're feeling like the status quo is, is working uh, for you or for others who are, who are vulnerable around you, you're probably an idealist. You just maybe don't want to admit it. But the second part of idealism is, do you think there's a place for you to do something about it? And that I think is often where people uh, actually turn away and just think, ah, it won't work. If I vote, it won't matter. Uh, if I run for office, I won't win or the system is so corrupt. And that I think is where, you know, in my writing and, and engagement and my activism, 
that's where I try to meet people because I feel well, all of us feel that way, uh, small and as if any little thing that we do is incommensurate to to the kind of change we seek. And so I wanted the other reason I wrote the book in the way that I did, which describes a number of times in which I failed uh, to achieve whatever I was setting out to do. But I but I have really concrete examples of where human effort worked and made a difference, whether ending the Ebola crisis or getting female political prisoners out of jail or getting the Paris Climate Treaty modest in its impact, though we know it is across the finish line, so it became international law. And those examples, sometimes I feel we don't offer them, especially to young people enough, where they see the examples of people pooling their energies and their ideals and and suffering setbacks, but motoring ahead and getting things done. So, so I think those examples need to be a, a fuller part of what we bring uh, to light. Selena, what are your thoughts about idealism versus pragmatism? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like, like Samantha qualifying my use of the word magic, you know, it's quite important because I, I don't use that word idealism, actually. I, 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 I often use the word you know, what magic is possible. And magic is only possible through creative uh, creativity for me, curiosity and bravery. And part of that process and feeling like I'm making a difference is in my context, deliberately not keeping my eye on the scoreboard, so to speak, because I'd get too depressed when I don't see enough change happening in terms of equity and diversity in the workplace and, Treaty of Waitangi rights, you know, Indigenous rights being honoured institutionally. It's like as an artist, I have to um, gaze inward and figure out where do I best work my magic. And um, early on, you know, I don't, um, I wasn't the kind of activist that I saw around me and I felt deeply disappointed that I, I wasn't like that. And it was only when I started going inwards and and think and and feeling like well this is where my magic happens it's when i kind of go in and down in order to make work that is out and accessible and building pathways and bridges and a lot of that just has to do with um energy and so i go into schools and you know it's actually one of the beautiful um side effects of of covid-19 and the emphasis on uh, zooming in like last week I was in four different schools up and down the country and you know these are schools that I could physically not get to but in some way shape or form I could I managed to reach out um, keep keep firmly kind of eyes grassroots level and be that accessible fallible imperfect person like there's a persona that they're all like oh Selena's here and when they learn how fallible and how many things that I've done that haven't worked and that one of my life mottos is that mistakes are made for making and that's where Mophead came from you know it was it was really empowering for them. Thanks Selena I mean I just heard a ping in the in my ear is that me going on too long? No, no. I think that was my um, very bad uh, email just um, announcing itself in the manner of Cass's dogs. Cass, do you have anything to add to this? Possibly. Possibly. So uh, <laughs> as, you were, as you were both talking, I was thinking that in our personal lives, uh, there are acts of kindness that can be you know, meaningful and, if you're lucky, transformative. So someone I know, it might be Ambassador Power, uh, does grocery shopping for an elderly and not particularly healthy neighbor. That's kind of astonishing that she does that. But she does that and makes his life better. And there are things we can do just with a kid or with a neighbor that can be a major for them. Uh, then in our jobs, if we're dealing with uh, a colleague or a friend who's struggling, maybe they're sad or scared about something, maybe they're sick, maybe they feel things aren't going well. There's something that each of us can do like this week that can be idealistic in the sense that it helps them. And then with our jobs, um, uh, with our citizenship outside of our jobs, uh, we can do something uh, in the next week. It might be just registering an opinion somewhere or giving a little money to somebody, 
or supporting someone uh, that can uh, potentially make all the difference. You might be the one who starts a cascade. And most of the people who are star cascades are anonymous. They don't end up in history books. So there's a, a phrase that was in our White House, uh, which was often deployed in cases in which, you know, you're dealing with climate change or world poverty or oppression of one or another kind. And the phrase is, better is good. And that's uh, an empowering thing in the face of the seemingly intractable. Uh, better, even if it's only a little better. Uh, that's very good. Mm. Absolutely. And just your anecdote, Cass, of, um, of a master power cooking for an elderly neighbour reminds me of our own Helen Clark coming back from the UN and New York to New Zealand and spending several weeks making food for her father to sit in his freezer so that he's got lots of hot dinners to have that his own daughter has made. And someone said to me at the time it was revealed in the documentary about it. They said, well, she's got money. Why doesn't she just buy food for him? But it's the act of love of cooking for someone that's part of, I suppose, what I would describe as idealism of what Ambassador Power uh, goes to the grocery store and finds a lot of things for this person for which he pays. It's an act of love. Absolutely. Acts of love and kindness, extremely important at this time. I'm, we have run a little bit over, but, um, and we've had lots of questions and that we haven't been able to get to. A lot of them are asking questions about what can I do? What can I do? I'm a student. What can my organization do? I really encourage you, uh, viewers, to read all the books that we have been discussing today and then think about what we've been talking about as well, small steps, small acts, acts of kindness, acts of idealism, acts of magic. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry that, that a conversation like this reminds me of what we're missing and not having a live festival this year with its usual long and discursive sessions. And I hope very much to be able to see you all in person in Auckland at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much to our guests today, Selena Tusitala-Marsh, Samantha Power, kia ora. Now, uh, a couple of things. The festival has just released a special extra winter series podcast with one of the guests who was supposed to be coming to the festival this year, disability advocate Harbin Gurma, celebrating her memoir, Harbin, The Deafblind Woman Who Conquered Harvard Law. Now, this is produced by our partner, the University of New South Wales, and the podcast can be found alongside other episodes on the festival's Look, Learn and Listen website page. Uh, thank you, as ever, to everyone who helps make the Winter Series a success, particularly Auckland Live, Copyright Licensing New Zealand, and the festival family of sponsors, grant makers, and patrons, all of whom are listed on our website. Next week, I will be taking a break, and uh, Tina Makareti, the festival's 2020 Onayane Series curator, takes the hosting chair, alongside veteran writer Renee discussing her first crime novel, First Nations poet and novelist Joshua Whitehead and writer and musician Ruby May Hinepunui Soli, who will talk about her new music album and its companion piece of writing. Pieces of writing, sorry. Um, I will be back on July the 12th, where my guests will be Neil Gaiman, Leanne Shapton, and Kolakeza Mahinatuai. Until then, hairaira. <laughs> <laughs>